everyone. I'm Kim Bremer, your host today for another edition of Bova News, keeping you up to date on the cattle industry's latest in technology, management, genetics, and more. Today, we're going to be talking about transitioning the farm business to the next generation of ownership and how this is one of the most important and tedious processes to go through, but it's critically important to the long-term sustainability of any business. Building a plan, following legal guidelines, and following a process is important. Today, we're going to hear from some experts on how to establish an effective transition process, including insights from a dairy producer who's in the process of transitioning the dairy business to the next generation. Our first presenter today is Dr. Shannon Farrell from Oklahoma State University. He's a professor in the Department of Agricultural Economics, where he specializes in agricultural law. He obtained his bachelor's and master's degrees in agricultural economics from OSU before obtaining his Juris Doctorate from the Oklahoma City University School of Law with endorsements in estate, in estate planning and business and financial services law. Shannon spent a number of years in full-time private practice before joining OSU in 2007. As an educator and speaker, Shannon helps audiences all over North America understand the fundamental legal elements of farm business management and farm transition planning. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. Welcome, everybody. This is a topic I'm pretty passionate about. Hopefully that comes across because really what we're talking about here is not just the preservation of a farm and its asset base. We're talking about the preservation of the farm family itself because it doesn't necessarily do us any good if we keep the farm operation together, but at the same time, our family doesn't talk to each other at the holidays. So Really, I view a successful farm transition as being one where the family relationships are maintained and hopefully the economic integrity of the farm business is maintained as well. So without further ado, let's let's talk about that. You know, if I talk to a lot of farmers and ranchers, they'll almost unanimously tell me, you know, ideally when I'm gone, I want to keep the farm in the family and I want to keep the family farming. Well, how are we doing that as an industry and our success rate is not phenomenal. And I wanted to show you this first slide that shows you what I think is kind of the value of transition planning. This is an actual farm with financial records that go back to the 1930s and in and of itself, that's kind of a rarity. But if you look at the blue lines on this graph, that shows the net worth of that farm over time, and you notice in about 1960, um, about 1980, and then about 2011, you see the net worth of that farm chopped in half. And what happened at those points in time? Well, it's quite simply that someone died and we did what exactly most farms do. They forced an off-farm heir to basically sell to the on-farm heir. And you're thinking to yourself, well, what's the problem there? The on-farm heir got the assets. Yeah, but they took assets that the family had previously owned free and clear and had to remortgage them to buy out an off-farm heir. So if you want to put it in another term, you could say that the farm was forcing itself back into debt as a result of their chosen transition plan. And if you think about it that way, it sounds kind of crazy. Why would we take assets that we own free and clear and basically put them back under debt? If you look at the green on this chart, you'll see that if that family hadn't done that, if that farm had continued with the documented rate of asset growth that it had, the difference in those two outcomes by the time that we got to 2012 there 
for this particular farm would be a difference of nearly $5 million, 4.75 million to be precise. So if we do a better job of transition planning and we do a better job of having conversations, not just with our on-farm heirs, but also with our off-farm heirs, we can do a lot to preserve the value of the farm, make it more profitable and make everyone better off. Now you're thinking to yourself, well, okay, yeah, that sounds like a no-duh statement, Farrell. So what? Well, the reason that I want to have this conversation with you today is that old proverb that says the best day to plant a tree would have been 20 years ago, but the second best day is today. If we engage in a farm transition discussion with our family now, the sooner we make that happen, we make time an ally. The longer we wait, time starts to become an enemy. There are lots of factors at play here. Running a successful farm transition process is gonna involve a lot of in-depth conversations with family members. It may involve relationship building, relationship repair, but it also involves the time value of money and the asset growth of our farm. So if you wanna think about it another way, we're talking about an hourglass where the sand represents how much time we actually have to implement a successful transition plan, but the only problem is we don't know how much sands in the hourglass. And as we provide this program to you today in the midst of a pandemic, you know, there are lots of tragic reminders that kind of reinforce to us, we don't know how long we have. And in my own family, I've had to deal with this. I'm the oldest of three brothers. My youngest brother, Adam, is eight years younger than me. And in 2015, he was killed in a farm accident. And Adam was the farm heir. My Self and my middle brother, we both have off-farm employment. We're really happy with what we do, and we never really intended to go back and operate the farm, but that was Adam's objective from the very start, and now Adam's gone. So my family's transition plan has been thrown into chaos, and we've successfully reorganized it, but it's taken some time. So the sad reality is we just don't know how long we have to implement a transition plan, so the time to get that started is now. But since we're talking about time, there's something else I want to talk to you about. I want to give you the illustration of a farm-owning family from back east, really, really, really far back east. But look at this family for a moment, okay? Mom has run this farm longer than anybody in her family ever has, but mom's 94. Now, her husband tries to help out, but he's, you know, kind of getting up there as well. He's 99, and just a couple of years ago said, Mom, I really can't help on the farm anymore. I'm physically not capable of doing it, so, so I'm going to retire at the, at the early age of, of, I believe at that point in time, 97. Now, they could say, you know what? We've had a great run. It's time to turn things over to our kid. Well, our kid's 72. Our kid's already past retirement age, and if we don't give it to him. If we skip the next generation, then the next kid in line, our grandkid is 38 years old. You might think this is an extreme example, but folks, I'm here to tell you, I run into farm families all the time where these are the ages of the people that we're talking about. And the reason that that oldest generation really doesn't want to turn things over is it may be that their only retirement asset is the farm. And that's kind of a tough place to be in. They know no one else can operate it as well as they can, and they're right. But if they do a good job of training that next generation and slowly moving them into a role of management control, they can have some confidence that they can run the farm well, that they'll still have a viable retirement income and that the farm stands a much better chance of successfully making it to the next generation. Okay, then, well, you keep talking about who needs a transition plan. My argument is absolutely everybody. 
everybody needs to have a transition plan. My brother, who at the time of his death was a single guy, no kids, he still needed a transition plan. But I would point out that the folks that are especially vulnerable to things going wrong in this process are young families, where you're dependent perhaps on one or more sources of off-farm income. You're in that early stage of asset accumulation, so you're probably more highly leveraged. Losing someone can be a really crippling blow there. And by the same token, any farm that's this kind of on the verge of being a full-time commercial operation is similarly vulnerable. Anytime you've got a farm or ag operation that has limited asset liquidity, although since 85% of the U.S. farm balance sheet is land and land isn't liquid, I would argue that everybody is in that category, right? And then, of course, you have families where there have been remarriages, divorce, half-brothers and sisters, stepkids. You need a plan because there are just much more complex family dynamics at play that have to be dealt with by that plan. Okay, Farrell, what do I do about it? The good news is that it's just a five-step process. The slightly less great news is that each one of these steps has roughly 100 sub-steps, but don't focus on that. Let's focus on the five steps. Number one, Figure out where you're starting from. Where are you right now? Lots of people run right past this step, and that kind of dooms your process to failure. So let's do a good job of establishing where your operation is right now. Two, communicate with your stakeholders. Talk to the people that have a financial investment in your farm, but don't forget to talk to the people that have an emotional investment in your farm. Step three, have a business succession plan. How are you going to move ownership and control and participation in the revenues of your business from where it is currently to who it's going to go to in the future. This is more complex than you might think, but if you take the reins and really be proactive about it, you can make it a lot easier. Step four, have an estate plan. Have a clear tool or tools in place for moving title to your property from one generation to the next after someone has passed away too. And then of course, this is a cycle. So we're going to continue to go back, develop, reevaluate, reimplement, and kind of go through this process continually as long as we're around to ensure that it has the greatest chance of success. With inventory, it's really pretty straightforward. You have to do the deepest dive you ever have in terms of establishing the title to your property, title to your equipment, vehicles, um, stores of commodities, financial assets, you need to do the best job you ever have of rounding up every piece of property you got, how it's owned, what its current value is, what its tax basis is, and what you could get out on the fair market if you had to sell it tomorrow. The deepest dive you ever have. Step two, you've got to engage with your family. You got to have the talk. And we'll talk at a later point perhaps about how having this talk at Christmas or Thanksgiving may not be the best time or place to do it, but you do need to get together, have a family meeting and ask one question and be very clear that you want open, honest conversation with respect to it. What do you view as the future of this farm and what do you view as your role in it? Have the deep, honest conversation and let people know that you really want to hear what they have to think. You might find that you discover a lot of stuff in this conversation that might have nothing to do with the future of farm, but that has everything to do with family relationships. And you got to fix the relationships first before you're really going to be able to make progress with respect to the farm transition plans. So be prepared to talk about your feelings, which is something I know farmers and ranchers love to do. It's tough. It takes courage, but it needs to be done. And part of that conversation is how do you deal with people that might be living in town and don't really have an intention to come back to the farm, but feel a real emotional connection to it and might be really upset if they didn't have the ability to come back and at least visit the place where they grew up or where they spent time with grandma and grandpa. Another thing we have to talk about is 
people's feeling of entitlement to assets that they may not have actively contributed to. You know, if you're an off-farm heir and you haven't contributed to the farm in 20 years, why do you feel like you have a share in that asset base? If we can create an attitude of opportunity and say, hey, if you want to invest in this farm, it's okay if you can't come back and work every day, but would you be willing to invest capital at risk to help us expand so that we can increase economic returns and provide you dividends? People crave choice. And if they feel like they've had a choice in the future of the farm, they're going to be a lot more ready to accept transition plans that may not involve them getting as big a share of the farm assets if they've chosen that they don't want to be actively involved in the farm, but they have to be presented with that choice. Another thing we have to remember in these conversations is that equal and equitable are different words, right? Giving everyone an undivided share of farm assets when they have no interest in operating the farm is a recipe for disaster in the economic future of that farm. It's going to put them, the off-farm heir, in a position of not getting the returns that they want, having resentment towards the management decisions made by the on-farm heir. And at the same time, the on-farm heir is likely to be resentful that they've had to go back into debt to potentially buy out the off-farm heir. So we have to understand that treating everyone the same is not necessarily treating them fairly. Again, we have to make explicit the contributions and the risks that everyone's taken in the future of the farm. And that has to weigh in our analysis of how we handle that transition going forward. Next, we have to talk about how we move this business from its current owners and operators to the next. And I liken this to trying to change the tires on a car while it's driving down the highway at highway speeds. You're trying to keep everything moving at the same time that you're changing parts in that machine. That's complicated, but it's also very achievable, again, if you start doing a really good job of training people for what the next step in that development is. Yeah, you may have run this farm for decades and no one knows this farm as well as you. Let's fix that. Let's take advantage of the experience that you have in the operations of this farm and teach that next generation. And we're not just teaching them how, right? In agriculture, we're great at teaching people how to do stuff. We're not as great at teaching people why we do it. And why is the stuff of leadership. How do you operate the tractor is great. Why do we have this crop mix? Why do we have the marketing plan that we do? Why do we have the strategic goals that we have? That's what's important. And let's take advantage of your experience while you're still around. You're kind of a lousy teacher once you're dead. So let's take advantage of your experience now and prepare that next generation. And let's start early, by the way, to give them lots of opportunities to figure out where they're the best fit in our agricultural operation. And Troy will talk to you at length about some of the mechanisms that we can use to start transitioning some of those economic pieces from one generation to the next as well. Then we obviously have to have an estate plan. Ideally, if our plan works pretty well, we may have transitioned a pretty significant bulk of farm assets and other items before we pass away, but we're still going to hold title to some assets when we pass. And so we've got to have an estate plan in place. 55% of American adults have no estate planning tools in place, but it's even worse in agriculture. 64% of us in agriculture don't have any estate tools in place, which is insane when you consider that the net worth average for a U.S. farmer ranch is $1.2 million compared to $86,000 for the average U.S. household. So a will, a power of attorney for healthcare, a power of attorney for business matters, an advanced directive, 
likely some form of life insurance and perhaps a trust are all tools that we need to be considering pretty heavily in making sure that our assets make it to that next generation. But beyond our estate planning tools, the pandemic has taught us something else if we didn't know it already, and some of us did. You need to have a hit by a blank plan whether it's a truck or a virus, but if you are a principal operator or principal stakeholder in your business and something happens to take you out of operation, and it may not be death, it may be disability, you might be in intensive care or heaven forbid on a ventilator for some time. How is someone else gonna step in and take your role in the business and operate that farm on a day-to-day -day basis until you're well again? Or if you're gone, how do they do that moving forward indefinitely? You've gotta make it very clear how to run your farm with good records, good journaling, having accessible passwords, keys, codes. In other words, have a package put together so that if someone needs to step in and run the farm tomorrow, they're prepared to do that. Now, like I said earlier, this is not a one and done process. There are lots of milestones and lots of triggers that need to have you go back and review your plan periodically. Whenever somebody is born, whenever somebody dies, whenever someone gets married, whenever someone gets divorced, whenever you have a major acquisition of an asset or the major sale of an asset or other transfer, then of course, just set yourself an alarm clock and have a regular basis for going back and checking on this stuff. Now, you've spent a lifetime building on what may have been previous lifetimes of your predecessors developing this asset base. Don't cheap out now. Don't go on the internet, download some forms and think that you've got it. I'm going to give you a quick example of Leonid Rogozov, who was a Russian explorer on an expedition. He was the doctor for his expedition. He could develop appendicitis while they were on their mission. He had to remove his own appendix. Can you remove your own appendix? Technically, yes, but it's not recommended. Can you do your own transition planning? Yes, but it's not recommended for the same reason. It's a lot easier for someone with an outside perspective to take a look at things objectively without the emotional connotations and give you straight answers to your questions. So you need to have a transition team, whether it's the Dirty Dozen, the Magnificent Seven, the Avengers, or Charlie Brown's All-Stars. Put a good team of professionals around yourself to give you sound advice because this is one of the most important processes you're going to undertake in the entire life of your farm. So you need to have a good accountant to help you evaluate your financial performance. And is this a viable operation that we can transition? Also, what are the tax implications of what we're thinking about? Have a good attorney to help you figure out the legal mechanics of all the tools that you'll need to put in place. Get a production consultant to help you figure out how is it possible to grow and expand our operation and move it to the next generation. Get an investment advisor to teach you that you might want to invest in some things off the farm to provide income continuity, especially if mom and dad might be entering a semi-retirement role, but need steady income to provide them with a lifestyle that will keep them comfortable in retirement. Have an HR advisor to help you understand how to put your people on the right seats on the bus of your farm. And then it's okay to have a family uh, consultant, a family counselor. If there are some deep-seated family issues that you need to move past, it is good. It is okay to go out there and get help and have someone kind of mediate the conversation. Give yourself someone outside the family that you can all hate um, and not hate each other. That's fine. You know, at the end of the day, recognize that this is going to be a plan and the plan is going to change just because stuff changes in ways you can't predict. It's okay to be flexible, but be flexible with a plan. In closing, I want to give you guys five quick 
principles here and then tie up with one very short story. Number one, by not choosing, you have chosen. If you choose not to engage in some form of active planning, a plan's going to be imposed on you and you probably don't like it. It's not a matter of if someone's going to die in your operation. It's a matter of when, right? And we don't know when, but we treat transition planning like it's a contingency, like, yeah, I might die someday. And I don't want to say it you know, this way, but everyone is going to die. Statistically, 100% of people have uh, passed away. So we've got to make that an eventuality, right? Being quiet is one of the worst things that you can do, though. Not having the conversations, not engaging your stakeholders is one of the worst things you can do because people want choices. And if they feel like they had a choice, if they feel like they were respected in the conversation and that they had a say, they'll be a lot more likely to really actively engage in the process and be okay with the outcome. And last, but certainly not least, you know, we as farmers and ranchers always say we want to see that next generation get out there and succeed. But if we only transition the farm when we pass away, we don't get to see that success. I think it's a much more fulfilling experience if you can transition your farm while you're alive and help your next generation succeed and witness and participate in their success. And I think one of the best examples of that is the Huckel family that you see right here. At the age of 21, Brittany became the oldest surviving member of her farm's management structure due to both her grandfather and father passing away of uh, brain tumors a few years apart, but Brittany had been trained by her grandfather and her father to be a successor from day one. They had a plan in place and she jumped in there and has had tremendous success. And that's huge. You can do so much good for the next generation if you just plan ahead. And you see right there, the fourth generation of Hugel Farms just showed up in September of this last year and he's doing pretty well too. So with that, I'll conclude my remarks, but here's some contact information if you wanna reach out to me or to your host today for any further information. That's a very quick overview of the transition planning process, but your next speaker is gonna drive down a lot deeper into that process and give you some really practical information for how you can actually implement a plan for your farm. So thanks for your attention and being part of the audience today and I'll turn it back over to our host. Thank you, Shannon. Our next presenter is Troy Schneider. He's a partner with the firm of Tuig, Rietbrock, Schneider, and Halbach in Chilton, Wisconsin. And he specializes in the areas of real estate, business, and estate planning. Troy received his law degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's a past member of the board of the Solo Small Firm and General Practice Section and past chair of its Agricultural Rural Practice Committee. Troy is also a member of the American Agricultural Law Association. Troy's family continues to operate a 3,500 head steer and heifer farm in eastern Wisconsin. Thanks for joining us today, Troy. But thank you for having me. Um, my first slide is just a, a little bit about our firm. Um, we're proud to be considered farm lawyers and uh, the attorneys in our office all have a agricultural background, which makes us a little bit uh, unique. Um, the first slide I wanna share with you is a little bit about um, the first steps. And as, and as Shannon had mentioned, uh, communicating the succession plan is extremely important. It is, it's essential that the successors really understand how the parents intend to transfer the ownership to them. It does no good for the parents to have the plan in their head without, uh, without it being communicated uh, to the uh, successors. Therefore, really deep discussions need to be had of what assets are essential for the farm business and make sure that your succession plan covers all of them and confirm that the, um, that the, the, 
the uh, right to have the farm is a right and not a privilege uh, that the ownership of the farm needs to be earned. And also during a succession planning meeting, it, there should be time spent on different alternatives of transferring equity in the form of bargain sales, option to purchase. Those are all some of the uh, mechanics of how this is done. And what equity have the, uh, um, a discussion should be of what equity the uh, successors already have earned. So um, somebody who has been on the farm for a number of years probably has earned, quote unquote, a, and put a, a great deal of sweat equity into the farm already. And how the discussion should be of how we deal with in, within the successor group themselves, how we deal with differences in performance, work time, duties, and responsibilities. Again, just because you have the right last name doesn't mean necessarily that you're entitled to a, a, a certain salary and or ownership percentage on the farm. Also during the uh, a succession planning meeting, there should be some focus on the difference, what are the best structures for the farm business. As you know, alternatives in, include these days, LLCs, corporations, partnerships. There can be leases of assets and options. There can be retained ownership. Also within the entity itself, albeit whether it be a corporation or an LLC, there can be different types of shares or in, in LLCs, we call them units of voting and non-voting and uh, incentive units, which or a phantom stock and uh, preferred stock and, and the like. So also we should, there should be a, a specific time spent on establishing buy-sell discussions and uh, uh, provisions. What happens in the event of an owner's the D's, death, disability, divorce, termination of employment, a change of commitment, or when somebody, or misconduct. Also, we should talk about, during, we should have real discussions about, okay, if the farm transfers to the successors, which of their children have the opportunity to take over as well too. But it's really important, and I think Shannon mentioned this as well too, buys, plans uh, when there is a triggering event need to be updated to cover all essential assets and it must be at prices and terms that can cash flow. So also during the a farm succession planning conference, we need to, there needs to be some time spent on what the needs of the parents are, the, um, the predecessors. The, so what does retirement look like for them? Um, senior members uh, and their retirement need to um, talk about what their needs are. And by nature, the successors are more focused on what money is available to be reinvested back in the farm. The senior generation needs to spend some time on what their projected retirement needs are. And their compensation, their, their retirement, it can, can come from a number of uh, sources. It can uh, come from continued work. It can come from rents of real estate that they own, off-farm investments, etc. Also, you need to. We should be. There should be talking about what the needs are with regard to um, where the parents will live and when, and, and things like that. <clears throat> Finally, during a farm succession planning conference, there should be some uh, uh, time spent on life insurance, and um, it's amazing what people. For it's people often forget about what kind of life insurance they have, what its purpose was, and and how it really is structured. 
And believe it or not, the uh, the specifics on the, on that contract can be so important. Make sure that the the life insurance functions like it was supposed to. And so existing life insurance should be reviewed, basically kind of audited. And it should make sure that there that there is planning so that there's adequate life insurance. And when does it become impractical for, to hold uh, that specific life insurance? Again, now I want to spend just a little uh, uh, more specific time on LLCs. And in most cases, the parents will form an LLC, which operates the farm business and, uh, and, and, uh, and owns the farm personal property. LLCs are a great tool. They provide limited liability protection. And rather than transferring farm assets, they're an easy mechanism to transfer ownership in the farm. Again, as a refresher course, just some basic tax rules regarding an LLC. An LLC most of the time is taxed like a partnership. In other words, it files a form 1065 with the IRS. And then the income, uh, the income and expenses from that partnership flow down to the owners and each owner is, receives a K-1 based upon his proportional share of ownership. Most of the time, uh, no gain or loss is recognized when you put assets into an LLC. However, you should remember that debt relief is a taxable event. So if you're relieved of debt, that can create some tax issues. Also, gifts of LLC units are also generally in, uh, an income tax neutral event, meaning they don't create income tax. However, if your debt exceeds your remaining tax basis in your assets, that a gift can create a, a taxable event. My next slide, I just want to illustrate for you what a basic uh, LLC transfer would look like. And I want you to pay special note to the columns that say capital, growth, and profits. It's really important to note that LLCs are so flexible. And, and that's why we attorneys really like them as a tool for succession planning. The, uh, the capital or the ownership of assets can be different, can be in a different percentage as to what your growth in equity on those assets can be. It also can be different than how you divide up the profits as well too. An LLC agreement can address all of those um, issues. Also, my next slide, I want to show you a, um, a little bit about uh, old uh, farm corporations. Corporations, uh, a lot of farms do have a uh, farm corporation. And under current tax laws at a 21% tax rate, a lot of people do like corporations. I would argue that from a asset heavy business like farming, corporations do have some negative effects, especially upon death and the loss of stepped up basis and the ability to redepreciate assets upon death. Therefore, in an asset heavy business, it's often advantageous to remove assets out of a corporation, put them in a separate entity, but continue to operate the farm through a corporate type of structure. Again, my next slide, I just wanted to drill down on some, again, more specific details on a LLC operating agreement. LLC units, kind of like shares of a corporation, can have different classes. So there can be um, uh, preferred units, which means that a, a, uh, a set value is set on those units. The value of those units can't go up and they can't go down. down. It's much like preferred stock in a, uh, in a corporation. Also, an LLC can have what's called incentive units or profits, profits interests. 
if you've ever heard the term of phantom stock in a corporation, an LLC allows that kind of uh, structure as well, too. In other words, you gain more ownership in stock as you vest into uh, staying around as employed by the corporation over a period of time. Also, management in a corporation can be by members. It can be by board of directors. It can be by outside uh, people as well, too. Also, an LLC operating agreement should spell out what the member and manager commitments to the farm or uh, business are. Also, a, a, the key provisions of an operating agreements should include the authority of managers and members to act on themselves or active or what has to be brought to back to the management team for decisions as well. Finally, the uh, another key provision of operating agreements should be what how restrictive are you, or what are restrictions placed on the transfer of LLC units? In other words, what permitted transfers are, are allowed? Can you transfer units to your spouse? Can, you tran can parents transfer member LLC units to other family members who may be uh, committed uh, fa uh, capable family members? Also, within the second generation, a, talk a, a discussion should be had of, okay, what, what, um, what are the rules of entry then for the next generation or, or generation three. Um, there should be a talk about, okay, if the uh, successor generation, if that uh, active owner is deceased, is there a mechanism that his ownership can be held for possibly the third generation as well too? There, there should be certain in the LLC operating agreement, um, certain events may trigger the right or obligation to purchase. So for example, do you are will uh, are do does the uh, LLC operating agreement only anticipate that only active members uh, who are actively employed by the farm can only be part of the farm? Um, also, it, there should be a talk about when a when a member of the LLC reaches a certain age, what are the ability to have the uh, farm buy back LLC units from them? Finally, one of the couple of the uh, one of the most important terms of, of uh, operating agreements, and one that does not uh, get enough attention, is to how do we value your ownership interest in the farm? Common value ma valuation methods are, you know, the asset minus liabilities approach. I would argue that in a farm, sometimes that is not the most um, fair mechanism to uh, value a farm where possibly a cash flow type of approach would be a more equitable or more realistic approach to how you value farm interests. Also, uh, key provisions the operating agreement should be is when there is a buyout event, does, that, does the farm have to come up with the cash to make that happen uh, immediately? Or what kind of payment terms would be are, are in the operating agreement? Um, finally, uh, the operating agreement should address certain things like uh, rights of first refusal, if you receive a uh, uh, somebody else to purchase your uh, farm ownership interest, not that likely. But one some of the things that uh, more are, are more applicable are um, if there's a uh, if uh, some of the uh, LLC units possibly uh, LLC members want to liquidate, are do every does everyone have to tag along or drag along with those events too? Also, what are the terms? for amendment of the operating agreement. Is that done by unanimous vote, a supermajority vote, which is typically like 75%, or is a straight majority vote at 51%? Again, how you make decisions and the not necessarily the operating agreement is not gonna spell out every decision, 
uh, that can, has to be made with regard to management. It's more laying out a constitution of how decisions are made. And finally, uh, Shannon tept, uh, uh, stepped on some of these, uh, several of these other succession planning issues as well too. Every succession plan has to address the estate plan uh, of the both the senior generation and the successor generations. Also, long-term care planning for the senior generations is important. Do we expect what if what, what if mom and dad do do go to the nursing home? How is that going to be paid? Are there uh, legal mechanisms? And there are to protect, especially real estate, from being at risk for being used for long-term care. Also. We need to talk about divorce and death protection strategies for the successors, especially ones that are uh, uh, being new, newly brought into the operation. Um, are we going to put, at, rather than direct gifting to those successor gen successors, are we going to put assets into a trust for them? Do we expect them to uh, have a marital property agreement with their spouse? Again, other succession planning issues that all should be addressed. And with that, I will turn it back uh, over to our moder moderator. Thank you, Troy. And our final presenter today, great people, great cows, great returns. That's the vision of Rosie Lane Holsteins, a dairy farm near Watertown, Wisconsin, owned and operated by Lloyd and his wife, Daphne, and their partners, Tim Strobel and Jordan Matthews. Lloyd and Daphne started farming in 1981 after graduating from UW-Madison. They formed an LLC in 1999 and Tim Strobel joined as partner. In 2013, Jordan Matthews joined as a partner. Lloyd and Daphne have grown the Rosie Lane herd from 80 cows to 1,050 cows, plus young stock. The Rosie Lane team consists of 20 full-time employees that help care for the animals and raise all the forages. Rosie Lane was a 2020 national winner for Outstanding Dairy Farm Sustainability as part of the U.S. Dairy Sustainability Awards. Thanks for joining us today, Lloyd. Morning, Kim. Thank you for uh, having me this morning. And I'm Lloyd Holterman from Watertown, Wisconsin, and today I'm going to talk about our farm transition experience, transitioning Rosie Lane Holstein's LLC from Daphne and I to two young partners. At Rosie Lane, we have a vision of great people, great cows, and great returns. It's what we do with our great people that really has the biggest impact on our business. A little bit about our farm history. In 1980, Daphne and I started farming with my parents. She had a full-time job off-farm. And um, then after about seven years, uh, we parted ways, uh, broke up the partnership with my parents and we bought 110 cows and rented 360 acres, uh, not too far from Watertown. Then uh, we returned to the farm, uh, to the home farm in 1990 and purchased the cows and machinery from my parents, leased the land until 1994. Then we um, purchased the home farm. And along the way, we started to expand uh, every step of the way, um, growth more in net worth than in just cow numbers, net worth and, and land base. Um, from 1994 to 1998, uh, we knew we had to grow. Um, there was a really good time in, in uh, agriculture, so we knew we need, needed to grow. But at that time, Daphne and I were making all the decisions. The business had a plan for growth, but uh, how to how to uh, make this plan work. So we hired some consultants and we expanded the farm and we hired consultants for the two years following uh, the, the expansion. So 
by 1999, we were about 400 cows, 700 acres. We had two young employees. One was a very talented uh, crop guy, Tim Strobel. The other one, uh, Joel Amos, uh, was uh, working with me on the cows, and he owned some cows within the herd. Well, how do we work together? So I attended the Executive Program for Ag Producers, or TPAP, down in Austin, Texas. Uh, smallest farm in the class. Uh, the class was about 70 people. Farms were immensely huge, and but lots of different partnership structures. So then we came home and we decided uh, uh, to form an LLC, a new structure where I had uh, shares of stock. We started with a low dollar value per share, like $30 a share. So I think that's really one of the important things is you, you start with something that's affordable for people to start buying in. Um, an LLC was formed and the new partners bought shares of stock. Actually, um, one brought in cash and the other uh, traded his cow, cows for shares of stock. So then one of the things that I really recommend to focus a lot of time and energy on is the buy-sell structure. That's the most critical part of the agreement because everybody has to know that they have that how they can buy in and if they don't like it anymore, how they can leave. So at that time, we had two time a year partner meetings, which wasn't near enough. Um, now we have two, twice a week partner meetings ever since 2016. But we have, ever since day one in 1999, we have monthly full financial statements, profit and loss balance sheets that we do every, every single month and we go over them so everybody knows exactly where the business is at and exactly where they're at. So performance in all areas improved when you start measuring things and studying things and really analyzing things, the performance of your farm or business will improve. So in 2001, our buy-sell was tested as Joel um, decided he was going to get married to somebody from Michigan and they uh, moved back to Michigan. So we ended up buying Joel's shares of stock. The buy-sell worked to perfection even though it was very early on, um, probably not a huge test of it, but it, it was successful. All terms had been agreed to two years before, so there wasn't much to argue about. The same structure is still in place, and we utilized it um, in the sale of stock of one of the senior partners. So fast forward to 2013, we added Jordan Matthews as a partner. He's calm, people-focused. Tim runs the cropping and environmental compliance in the building projects. And um, then we, we decided that we needed to maybe speed up the transition and modify the partnership agreement. So what we came up with was a much more equitable distri distribution of earnings to speed up the transition. Three steps to our earnings distribution. The first thing is salaries. Everybody gets paid a salary. First, you have your profit and you deduct your salaries from the profit because their owner draws and they come out um, to each person. The salary should not be equal, I would argue. When somebody's in the first couple of years of their career, they're not worth as much money as somebody in the middle of their career. Or if somebody's putting in 80 hours a week of hard work and somebody else is putting in 40 because maybe they have uh, some different needs family needs, um, you need to reflect that in salaries. The second step is everybody has a, um, a shares of stock. The shares of stock are not equal. 
I happen to own the most shares of stock, Daphne and I do. Tim and Jordan own a minority share of the stock and they don't even own the same amounts of stock. So we get a uh, return to our stock because after all, a bank, when they borrow you money, they're going to get a return to their investment in your um, farm alone. You pay interest. So we that can be whatever the partners determine. So we've had that. It's ranged from four to eight percent. You could make it lower or higher. But uh, typically, remember that farm at, uh, a farm year after year, if they're making a six uh, percent return on assets, that's pretty darn good. So the third step, and this is really important for the younger generation, return to management. In other words, whatever's left after the first two steps, after the salaries come off the profit and after the return to stock comes off the profit, the return to management, when there was four partners, we split that evenly. In other words, we developed a system, uh, a farm system together, and that uh, the efficiencies of the system should yield some some um, some earnings. So we split those 25% each. Now, uh, one of the senior partners uh, uh, priced the stock. So now it's 33% each because there's three partners left. So the formal buyout in 2020, um, one senior partner started. Uh, so far, that's going very well. Uh, it does, you have to remember, you have to have, when somebody takes their assets out, uh, that puts a significant change in your cash flow because as you leave money in the business, that money doesn't have to come out. And so it doesn't compromise the, the asset base of the business. When one partner leaves, the other partners have to step up and buy. So uh, that does change your financial position, uh, not quite to the extent of death or divorce, but, um, and I will give some recommendations about how to make that work smoothly in another slide or two. So the must-haves of transition, you have to have a profitable business. If you don't have a profitable business, who's going to want to buy into it? And I think uh, if it's not profitable, you have bigger issues than how to transition it. In other words, why do you want to get rid of, I mean, who wants to buy into something that's that's got, looks like a dead end? You must do monthly financials, full balance sheets, full profit and losses so that you can spot uh, trends before they get to you and that each partner knows what their what their value is in the business every single month. So we have weekly partner meetings to keep the lines of communication going. There's clear rules and expectations for the partners. My, uh, regardless of your business, and this goes for managers or partners, uh, you want to minimize overlap and maximize responsibility. In other words, I don't interfere too much in Tim's uh, in Tim's area of the business, and I don't interfere too. I try not to interfere too much with Jordan's, um, even though we have overlap with the cows because I still run the genetic program. But we try to minimize the overlap and maximize responsibility. We also have job descriptions for all owners. In other words, if something happened to me, they could pick up my job description, know what I'm doing every day, and and uh, be able to be able to uh, fill that role, uh, either by hiring somebody or uh, or some other avenue. Again, uh, you must have trust. And I think in some family relationships, the trust isn't always there. Too much baggage, I think, uh, in a lot of family operations. And so the trust isn't always fully there and that can really 
if you don't have trust in your partners, that's going to be um, ultimately destroy the partnership. So senior partners, I have some advice for senior partners. You, you should start transitioning your responsibilities. Um, 20 years ago, uh, we started transitioning responsibilities to Tim. He runs a cropping operation, the environmental compliance. Then he started taking on the building projects. Uh, Jordan started with the employees and then he took over the herd management. So you have to be, senior partners also have to be willing to sell your stock over time. You have to maintain flexibility. And I'll tell you what we're doing to maintain that flexibility. But selling the stock over time is the best, uh, both for tax planning and so you don't cripple the operation with excess cash flow having to come out in any one year. You have and senior partners have a plan for where you're going to reinvest your cash from the bio. Uh, for us, it's farmland, stocks, bonds, and then we actually can loan money back to the parent company at, at, at the bank rate or below the bank rate. Yeah, not a get rich quick right now, but I think that also uh, really uh, helps stabilize the business and gives it tremendous power going forward if they have cash and take advantage of opportunities. So realigning things, um, you don't want to avoid taxes. You don't want to make decisions just to avoid taxes because it slows down the sale of stock and it's not fair to the younger generation. Daphne and I started funding a retirement in our 20s and 30s. Today that has really paid off. It's giving us tremendous flexibility. If, the, if we need to change the buyout or provide more financial flexibility to the young partners, we can do that because we have off-farm income. So that's, uh, that's really critical. I can't emphasize that enough. The other thing about IRAs and other vehicles, um, retirement funds cannot be lost in bankruptcies or um, they can't be lost in bankruptcies or lawsuits. I think that's really critical. That money's your money for retirement. So um, I think that's really some critical points. The junior partners, don't think you're gonna take this all over and own it in a couple of years. It was a lifetime to build it. And yes, you will be able to buy it faster than it took to build it. However, it takes time. You know, you have to set out and say, you have to have patience and say, I'm really gaining my net worth is going up and that's the value of the monthly financial statements. You know how much money you're making. Compare that to a job uh, off farm and you'll feel pretty good about it. Nothing is ever perfectly equal. In other words, we don't have equal salaries here. We don't own equal shares of stock. We don't have equal amounts of farmland. It doesn't matter because we have things pieced out in a cohesive thing that everybody, in a cohesive pattern that everybody's happy with the end result. Educate yourself, go to peer groups, uh, business school, that TPAP program really revolutionized early in my career um, how I looked at things and it's really paid off. So develop a team of personal advisors, not just lawyers and accountants, but uh, successful farmers in your area or somebody you really admire or friends that are really doing well. Uh, people share information across industries and across businesses and that's really valuable. Uh, I would recommend buy as much stock as possible every year. You're investing in yourself, you're investing in your future and it makes the transition go faster. If you put 
if you put more skin in the game. Start funding your retirement outside of the parent company because someday you're going to be in our situation where you're going to need to sell it and you're going to need to try to provide maximum flexibility. In other words, if uh, Rosie Lane couldn't pay Daphne and I for any of our shares of stock for the, for the next 10 years, we would have decisions to make, yes, but we would have maximum flexibility about how to go over it, how to go, go about it. So all the takeaways, everybody has to be flexible. The agreements must meet the majority of the partner financial and career goals. You have to rely on one or more consultants, advisors to guide you through the process. One is one of the most important ones for us is our farm business consultant. And the second one would be our accounting and tax preparer because they have deep farm experience and, they, and our tax preparer actually does the annual reconciliation statement because it is complicated and we need an outside person to make sure that it's correct and that uh, things were done properly. So, and then legal counsel, once you have a plan, you need to get that uh, so it's going to stand up in, in potential lawsuits, divorces, deaths, uh, off-farm heirs that uh, maybe feel like they have are entitled to more than you think they're entitled to. So everything needs to be in writing and you need good legal counsel to, to write it up in the proper formats. So talk to other farmers uh, with similar experiences and expectations. It's amazing how many mistakes are made and how people are willing to fess up and say, boy, I wish I would have done it different. And you can learn a lot from that. So the last thing to take away is your transition plan needs to create wealth for all the parties, not just one or two. And if somebody's getting a larger share of the wealth with less, uh, less invested, that's a good way to tear apart your partnership. So with that, um, I guess I'll turn it back over to Kim. Thanks, Lloyd. So I wanna start out asking a group of few questions here. I think I'm gonna start with you, Lloyd. Uh, have you communicated the transition process to your employee group? How is it received? Well, uh, when we brought uh, Tim in, uh, the business was very young and most of the employees uh, were, were fairly new also because it was during an expansion or right at the early stages of an expansion. So we did, we've never formally done it. However, uh, Tim and now Jordan have hired nearly all the people they manage. And so they already had more of a um, management over and they oversee those people. And so, um, and right from the very start when we bring employees in and we show them, uh, sign them up, uh, they're explained how the operation works, who's partners and uh, who's going to be their boss and how everything's going to work. So yes, uh, in, in very short formal, but I think uh, by giving um, the hiring responsibility to different people, that really kind of paves the way in my opinion for that. Now, Shannon and Troy, uh, how is what Lloyd went through transitioning to a non-farm partner the same or maybe different from the process that would involve transition to a family member? Who wants to tackle it first? I guess in some respects, um, it is a little bit different. Um, when you're transitioning to a non-family member, you always have to uh, ask yourself, I think, how generous can I really be um, when it's your child? 
you, you feel uh, less um, less cautionary about that. And um, in, when you have a family member, you, you can use your weapon of, of ultimate fairness, which is your estate plan or will. When you're a non-family member, you really don't have that tool at your disposal. So, and that's how I would say it, it, it's different. Also, from the mechanic standpoint, there are some things probably that the uh, that uh, from a tax perspective, you're allowed to do more so with a family member than you are with a non-family member. Um, not that you can you can do very similar things about uh, like moving assets and equity and things, but they just have to be done mechanically in a, in a different fashion. Troy, we have an administration change in DC. So what tax or other changes can we expect to happen with regard to ownership transfers? I primarily see, you know, farming is an asset heavy business. And I think we just have to pay a close attention to what Congress intends to do with the estate and gift tax um, at the end of 25, because it really, that's really, uh, that's the government's way of taxing asset transfers. It is is the estate and gift tax upon that. And also we have to pay attention to, I, I think what they wanna do with the stepped up basis rules upon that as well too, which I think can be a huge impact uh, on farming. So um, I have no idea what Congress is going to do, uh, where what their thought process is at. I think it's probably dictated by domestic economics and probably international economics as well too, so. Makes sense. And so you're referring to the stepped-up basis as far as capital gains taxes. You Correct. see that you moving forward. It, there has been uh, there has been discussion about eliminating the ability to step to step up assets to fair market value upon death from a tax basis standpoint. So, which would have a huge impact for farmers. So, certainly an issue for us to pay attention to. Shannon, uh, we hear the horror stories of families torn apart because of disagreements around the transfer of assets from one generation to the next. Uh, what would be your top things to help avoid that situation? You know, Lloyd made some excellent points on that during his portion of the presentation, and transparency is a huge factor, I think, in that. Um, really explicitly acknowledging the contributions that have been made by the various stakeholders in the operation really helps people understand, oh, I, I see what they're doing now. Um, and in turn, that kind of helps them deal with that entitlement versus opportunity mindset that we talked about and gives gives you an opening to have the conversation with them to say, hey, whether you intend to come back to the farm and live and operate here full time, or if you don't, but you still have a connection, you know, do you want to have an ability to participate in the farm? I, I talk to lots of off-farm heirs and, get, and hear about a lot of bitterness because mom or dad never asked them if they wanted to come back or never really provided them a pathway to come back. It might be that the farm can't support multiple family members coming back unless it has an infusion of capital to expand the asset base and really grow so that it could provide the returns that would support multiple families. So a way of kind of opening that up to the off-farm heirs is to say, hey, if you can't come back and work, that's okay. Are you willing to put at-risk capital into the business, into the structure? And that's another reason that I'm, I'm really a fan of what Lloyd has done with his operations because, again, you've got very clear expectations and pathways to provide ownership, get returns, and, and really actively economically engage with that operation. So 
give people choices is important, but if you want to get even more fundamental with that, it's just simply asking the question like, hey, do you see yourself having a role in this farm going forward? There's lots of research out there that shows if people are part of a deliberative process, like developing your transition plan, and they feel that the process was fair, that they had a chance to be heard, and that they were respected through that process, even if the result of that process isn't necessarily what they desired, they're much more likely to accept that result than if they were kind of shut out of that. So I would just say be open to that. And then the last thing I would say is be very careful to include the people that have an emotional stake in your farm. You know, so often we get caught up with making sure that the assets go to the right place, et cetera, et cetera. But we forget about the fact that, you know, a kid or a grandkid or a cousin or, or someone like that grew up spending summers on the farm with grandma and grandpa. They spent their time in the tire swing down by the creek and simply giving them some assurance that, hey, you know what, even under this plan, if you want to come back and have recreational use of the farm, so long as it doesn't interfere you know, with the operation of the farm, you can come back and visit as long as you want. And just having that assurance that they can maintain a connection of whatever kind with the farm can be a hugely curative thing for them. Uh, Troy, well, I think Troy or Shannon can help us with this. What happens if a contract is established between partners, but one over time, one partner thinks that they need more? Is there any way to avoid this, lessen the impact? How do you move through this kind of situation? I'll answer real quick, but I think Troy will have a, a good answer for you on, on the mechanics of that. And again, I'm going to go back to, to Lloyd's example. Lloyd, I'm just going to make you the textbook, I think, example going forward here. But again, being very clear about the contributions that are made and tying those to the expectations with respect to your role in the operation, I think is huge in, in establishing fairness and people feeling they're, they're being treated equitably. You know, in this, the context of farm operations, family farms, sorry, excuse me, I see a lot of people gloss over the quote unquote benefits. They might say, yeah, you got a salary uh, or you got health insurance or something like that. But they overlook the fact that you got use of the homestead house. You have a vehicle, you have fuel, you have groceries, you've got utilities. And those things can add up to be a pretty significant chunk of compensation that you have to make explicit. And so if we've got one uh, partner that's got massively higher levels of responsibility, massively higher levels of time devoted to the job, is that being explicitly recognized? And are we compensating that at what we feel is kind of a fair market value? Same token, is there lots of implicit comp compensation that we're not really paying attention to? And is that throwing our, our equity out of whack? But, but Troy, I'd kind of defer to you in terms of how do we, how do we structure that contractually? Well, I think probably the the mechanism of making that decision of how you how, of what the compensation amount is, is is important. And I think by human nature, we all we always tend to overestimate our abilities or or our worth and underestimate our, our partners' abilities. And so I, I and compensation, quite frankly, are some of the most difficult discussions uh, uh, farm owners have. So I think really, I think bringing in third parties, I think that's, uh, you touched on that, Shannon, you know, bringing in third parties to uh, tell it like it is. And really they, they don't have a, have a stake, you know, other than uh, their, their professional objective advice and opinions. So that, that's how I think is, it can be a very effective way to deal with that kind of situation. And, you know, Kim, Troy pointed out something there that I kind of want to loop back, and we can tie this to a lot of the different discussions that we've had in the course of this program. But one reason that you should like 
accountants, lawyers, production consultants, is that in the eyes of the family, we're expendable. We can come in, tell you something that you need to hear, but you don't really want to hear, and you can hate us for telling that, and then we go back to our office, and we're not there at Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever. Um, we can be that objective outside party that can kind of speak the truth, so to speak, and you don't have to be mad at a family member for telling that. You can be mad at us. We're fine. It's, it's okay. We're professionally signed up for that. Good point. I'd like to make one comment about uh, like the benefits that a family member might get for house heat, electricity, and fuel for it, and a pickup truck and all that. We have stayed away from that because when somebody looks at their compensation, guess what? The only thing they think about is the salary part, what they took home. And so that creates, and then if somebody's abusing it, which is easy to do, if somebody has a family of six in a 4,000 square foot house and somebody else is living by themselves, a partner, and he has a 1,200 square foot house, uh, things get way out of whack. And so I think the further away you stay from those agreements, everybody should know that it costs money to do this stuff and, and not lose sight of that. And I think that's, that's the slippery slope that causes a lot, of, uh, a lot of problems. And we've stayed way away from that. Yeah, we could have done all those things. We could provide vehicles and gasoline for all, but we don't. Uh, if you do something for the farm, you turn in mileage. So I, I, that's uh, my recommendation. If you want to stay, keep the lines, even on family things, the, cl the cleaner you keep your lines, the less conflict you're going to have. Interesting perspective, Lloyd. Thank you. Uh, Shannon, when should owners of a dairy business start considering a succession plan? It's, is it ever too early to start? You know, that's a fantastic question. And I, and I would argue no. And I want to kind of lay out a scenario for you. If you look at the average age of mortality in the United States, just the current statistics, life expectancy for men, women, et cetera, et cetera. And if you look at the average age of first kids, if you're the average family in the United States, you have your first kid at about age 26, you have your second kid at average age 28, um, Men at this point in time have a life expectancy of 76 and ladies have a life expectancy of 81, okay? If you want to have a 20-year planning horizon, which I would argue may not even be enough, you might want longer than that, you know, you've got to start talking about things when, you know, your kids might be in their 50s. You're like, all right, well, that's, that's probably a little bit late even. I would argue if you could start having those conversations when your kids are in their teen years, that's really valuable, as I say that, you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, my kids don't know what they want to do when they're teenagers. I mean, for crying out loud, you know, they're teenagers. Their brains are a complete mush. I get it. But the thing to do is, number one, to have conversations with your kids and say, hey, have you ever entertained the idea of maybe coming back to the farm and being part of it? And some kids from the time that they're teenagers say, absolutely, yes. That's one of my entire career trajectory to be along. Others might not. But Having that conversation with them at that early age helps to impress upon them like, hey, this is an option. So that's something I need to give some serious thought to. It also makes you think about how do I create a pathway for that to happen? How do I create you know, an HR need for the skill set that this uh, kid might have? How do I create an economic pathway for them to be able to be here and be here profitably so that they get a good return and it doesn't break the bank? But keep checking in with those kids. You know have that conversation 
annually at least, just so that you kind of have a feel for where they sit on that. That also encourages you to keep those doors open and say, okay, if somebody decides that they want to come back, I've got a pathway for them to do that, and it's not going to wreck the farm, and it's not going to wreck them. The other thing, too, is that those conversations can give you an opportunity to talk about a ownership mindset with your kids and to say, look, if you want to be part of this farm, here's what this involves. It's not just running the tractor. It's not just you know dealing with the cattle. There is risk involved. It requires an investment. It requires a time commitment. And as you start developing that ownership mindset in kids, you don't have to have the entitlement versus opportunity conversation. You've already had it dozens of times and they don't view it as just, I'm just entitled to this share of assets by virtue of who my mom and dad are. I recognize this is a viable business and I'm going to have an obligation to keep it viable if I want to come back. So I think, you know, really it's never too early to start developing that kind of cultural mindset in your kids and just keep doors open for them as they go along the way. And as we wrap this up today, Lloyd, as you've gone through your process of transitioning your business, and you mentioned this in your takeaways at the end of your presentation, uh, what are what were the main challenges that you and your team went through that you wish you had known about or that you could help other people potentially avoid? Well, I think we would probably, and we didn't start out with the three-step um, partnership, uh, the three-step reconciliation of earnings. And um, I think that that was probably a mistake and it, it did favor uh, Daphne and I because we had the most stock and it was a return to the stock where we didn't really consider. And then we had pretty much the salaries might've been um, in favor of the younger partners. But um, I, I think to get break this down so that you can see what your contribution is and see how you can contribute contribute more. We should have done that probably earlier. Um, and I think the thing is really flowing a lot better since we did that because there's less questions. There's, a, you know, because at one time Tim said to me, well, I'm never going to own all this. The operation keeps growing. And yeah, I have more shares of stock every year, but it's, I'll never own a majority position. And now he sees the pathway, what it's going to take. You want to own more? Go, go to the bank and borrow money for shares of stock. If you want to go faster, if you want to go slower, you know it's uh, depends on what your family needs are. So I think we should have implemented that probably a lot sooner, maybe from the beginning. But we hadn't even thought about that, and it it seemed to work the other way. But it, it was it works a lot better this way. Well, my thanks to Shannon, Troy, and Lloyd today for joining us and sharing your invaluable expertise and experience. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the Bova News channel on YouTube. Thanks for tuning in with us today, and we'll see you next time on another edition of Bova News.